You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. Today's episode is the second in a two-part series on the life and witch trials of Anne Peter's daughter. Each episode is meant to stand on its own, but today's episode mostly addresses fictional versions of Anne. If you want her full story and you missed the last episode, you may want to pause here, go back, and listen to One Single Idol, which tells the story of Anne Pater's daughter's real life, her marriage to Absalon Paterson Beyer, and her two witch trials. If you're all caught up, let's get on with the show. When I was little, my friends and I would play a game called telephone. We would sit in a circle, and one person would whisper a made-up phrase to the person next to them. That person would whisper what they thought they heard to the person next to them, and so on, until the last person in the circle would say the phrase they thought they heard out loud. The message rarely made it all the way to the end unscathed, and the distortion was, of course, the fun part. The reason I mention this is that the story I'm going to tell you today is really a centuries-long game of telephone. Today's episode is divided into three acts that each focus on a different work, a play, an opera, and a film, all inspired by the life and witch trials of Anne Peter's daughter. As a young woman, Anne Peter's daughter married Absalon Peterson Beyer, a Lutheran theologian and royal chaplain in the city of Bergen in the kingdom of Denmark-Norway. Absalon was a dedicated reformer who, unlike his foster father and predecessor, Gabel Peterson, pushed the people of Bergen to leave their Catholic traditions, abandon their beloved religious images, and embrace a stark form of Protestant Christianity. Absalon had many ideological and political enemies— And when Giebel died, Absalon's wife, Anne, was arrested and tried on suspicion of witchcraft. The charges against her included using witchcraft to cause Giebel's death so that her husband could advance his career. She was ultimately acquitted, but she and her husband remained unpopular among the secular authorities of Bergen. When Absalon died, city authorities targeted Anne once again, this time accusing her of causing the death of her late husband. This time, she was convicted and executed by burning in 1590. Despite the passage of hundreds of years, Anne would be given new life in the 20th century in the dramatic works she inspired. Aside from character names, Hans Wiers Jensen's four-act play Anne Peter's Daughter appears to have little to do with Anne's actual life. The drama centers on four main characters, a 22-year-old Anne, her 60-year-old husband, Lutheran theologian Absalon Peterson, Absalon's son from a prior marriage, Martin, a 25-year-old Lutheran theologian, and Absalon's elderly mother. The crux of the plot is a love affair between the fictionalized Anne and her stepson Martin, in which the couple becomes so obsessed with one another that observers conclude they must be bewitched. The play also takes for granted that Anne is, in fact, a witch, born from a line of witches with the power to summon lovers. 
The play opens with the witch trial of Anne's mother and her companion. By Act Two, Martin has fallen in love with his stepmother, and Absalon is racked with guilt over his failure to convict Anne's mother of witchcraft on account of his love for Anne. He tells Anne about his conviction that her mother was a witch, and Anne, curious to see if she has any powers of her own, inadvertently summons Martin. The plot thickens in Act 3, as Martin and Anne's desire for one another grows, and Absalon begins to feel that he's robbed his young wife of her youth. When he once again shares his anxieties with Anne, she remembers her diabolical powers, confesses her affair with Martin, tells Absalon he has, in fact, stolen her youth, and wishes to Absalon's face that he would die. Yes, Mr. Absalon, I have wished you dead, often, a hundred times. Wished you dead when you fondled me, wished you dead going from me and coming back to me, and I've wished it most since your son has come home. Now you know it. Now you know it. I've given myself to your son. Now you know it. I wish you dead. I wish you dead. Obediently, Absalon dies of a heart attack. Act 4 covers the fallout, as Absalon's mother accuses Anne of murder and witchcraft. Anne goes mad, and Martin remains tormented by his love for Anne. The play concludes with Anne's witch trial, in which she ultimately proves unable to defend herself and shrieks out her confession in front of the crowd. So you got your revenge, Absalon. Now I've no one. Yes, I murdered you by witchcraft, and I bewitched your son. I got your son into my power. By witchcraft. Now you know it. Now you know it! Peter's Daughter premiered in Oslo on February 12, 1908, and was produced in Bergen, the site of Anne's real-life witch trials, in 1909, where it appears to have been well-received. It's gone on to be staged elsewhere in English as The Witch, with productions in Europe, North America, and Asia. The play is a melodramatic tribute to Bergen's witch-hunting past. The playwright, Hans Viers Jensen, was born in Bergen and no doubt knew the city's history and lore. The family drama he presents in Anne Peter's Daughter is very much a product of European theatre at the turn of the century, and its themes and style echo his contemporary and fellow Norwegian playwright, Henrik Ibsen. While less familiar to most audiences than Ibsen, Veers Jensen still manages to give us a thrilling story, if a dramatic departure from the actual history, and his play would prove to have far-reaching influence. Even less recognizable to the original story of Anne Peter's daughter is Ottorino Respighi's opera La Fiamma, The Flame, which premiered in Rome in 1934. Loosely based on the play Anne Peter's Daughter, Respighi transported the story to the 7th century Byzantine court in Ravenna. The action centers on the love triangle of the young Silvana, her older husband, Basilio, and her young stepson, Donello. 
Like the play, the opera begins with a witch hunt, as a choral crowd hunts down a friend of Silvana's mother, also an accused witch. Silvana eventually falls in love with her handsome young stepson Donello. We learn, too, that Silvana's mother once bewitched Basilio, so he would fall in love with Silvana and marry her. But he confesses that the enchantment gave way to real love for his young wife. Curious if she also has such power, she whispers Donello, who immediately appears and embraces her. When Basilio learns of his wife's infidelity, he arranges to have Donello sent away. Silvana curses Basilio, and he mysteriously dies of a heart attack. Basilio's mother accuses Silvana of using witchcraft to seduce Donello and murder Basilio. At her trial, Silvana pleads with Donello to speak in her defense and asks, Why are you silent? She is given one last chance to prove her innocence by swearing on a holy relic. Breaking down, she finds she can't, and the opera ends with her condemnation and the crowd screaming, Strega, witch. First, this may just seem to be a straightforward adaptation of Veers Jensen's play, but staging an opera about an Italian witch hunt was a tricky task, at least in Rome in 1934. Adolf Hitler had just claimed the title of Fuhrer in Germany, and Benito Mussolini's fascist regime held power in Italy. This may help to explain Respighi's ambivalence toward both witchcraft and militant Christianity in his work. Respighi has been criticized for remaining in Italy under Mussolini, but unlike many of his fellow Italian composers, Respighi never dedicated any of his works to Il Duce, nor did he accept any commissions from him. Respighi even publicly came to the defense of the famed anti-fascist conductor Toscanini. Another Respighi opera, Lucrezia, ends with the words, Death to the tyrants, freedom to Rome. The message seems sincere enough. The theme of spiritual versus earthly passions played a role in fascist politics as well as La Fiamma. In a speech in Naples shortly before his march on Rome in 1922, Mussolini explained the need for a spiritual revival to accompany his nationalist mythos. The myth is a faith, a passion. It is not necessary for it to be a reality. It is a reality in the sense that it is a stimulus. It is hope. It is faith. It is courage. Our myth is the nation. Our myth is the greatness of the nation. And to this myth, this greatness, which we want to translate into a total reality, we subordinate everything
In many ways, La Fiamma, with its themes of institutional aggression, destructive passions, and personal hypocrisy, echoes the ideological challenges many artists faced under Mussolini's fascist regime. In fact, this is not the only version of Anne Peter's daughter's story produced in response to far-right politics. In 1943, Danish director Carl Theodore Dreyer premiered his film Day of Wrath, based on the play Anne Peter's Daughter. The film closely follows the plot of the play, but perhaps does a better job of blurring the clear line between good and evil that the play draws. Anne is clearly sympathetic, and the film works hard to call out Absalon's hypocrisy. Knowing that Anne's mother was a witch, he explicitly let her live because he wanted to marry Anne. Suspecting that Anne might share in her mother's powers, Absalon continues to turn a blind eye. Dreyer's film also does what previous versions of this story do not, makes the witches into female herb healers, and emphasizes the collective irrationality of the witch-hunting mob. In the set of dichotomies the film creates, the battle between good and evil, God and Satan, it's no coincidence that the witches of the story kill men for the sake of passion, while the church kills women somewhat dispassionately. The plot relies on the contrast between masculine self-control and rationality, and destructive feminine passions. Set in 17th century Denmark, much later than Anne's actual 16th century trial, it renders her story less exceptional as one of the first such trials in Norway and instead makes Anne just one of the numerous victims of Denmark's later witch craze. Like Rusbigi, Dreyer walked a fine line. He produced and premiered Day of Wrath during the Nazi occupation of Denmark. In April of 1940, Germany staged a military operation that turned Denmark into a German protectorate. For a time, Denmark's king and government were allowed to remain in place. An uneasy truce between Denmark's governing powers and the Nazi regime in Germany existed until August of 1943, when the Danish government refused to institute the death penalty for sabotage and Germany placed Denmark under direct military occupation. A resistance movement developed, and when German authorities ordered the internment of Denmark's Jews, members of the resistance helped Danish Jews escape to neutral Sweden. Shortly after premiering Day of Wrath in November of 1943, Dreyer, too, fled Denmark for Sweden. The Nazi occupation would ultimately take the lives of nearly 3,000 Danes, and Denmark would remain occupied until the Allied victory in May of 1945. Film critic Jonathan Rosenbaum has suggested that Day of Wrath may be the greatest film ever made about living under totalitarian rule. So how did Anne's story inspire so many works, and why did they get it all so wrong? 
In real life, the decision to try Anne for witchcraft was most likely inspired by her late husband's political position and dedication to a more radical shift toward Protestantism in Norway. But the story of a woman falsely accused because of her husband's zeal for church reform is not nearly as compelling as the story of love, lust, witchcraft, and vengeance. And we all want to be entertained. But the decision to show these altered versions of Anne's life have very little to do with Anne herself. Certainly, La Fiamma and Day of Wrath appear to have been written in direct response to the rise of fascism and Nazism in early 20th century Europe. In these works, Anne ceases to be a person and becomes a cipher, a symbol for all victims of oppressive regimes. The irony is that if it weren't for these works reinventing Anne and her story, few of us would have heard of her. When I first came up with the idea for an episode on the opera La Fiamma, I thought it would be just that, a discussion of Respighi's tragic love story and operatic witch trial. It was only when Tom, my co-producer, started to research the episode and unearthed the play that inspired the opera and the woman that inspired the play that we realized this was going to be a much bigger story, one that deserved to be told in its entirety. I have a special place in my heart for Anne Peters' daughter, and I hope that if she ever got a chance to see the play Anne Peters' Daughter or the opera La Fiamma or the film Day of Wrath, she could laugh at the melodrama and be at least a little glad that we still know her name all these hundreds of years later. Do we do a disservice to historical figures when we fictionalize them? Probably, but often those fictional accounts lead us to the real story, just as La Fiamma led me to Anne Peters' daughter. In the final scene of La Fiamma, Silvana turns to Donello and begs him to defend her, to tell everyone around them that she is not a witch, that if she had any power over him, it was only love. She sings... The potion and the spell were just my kisses. The mysterious ray that lit up your heart, the airborne message was a cry of love. Donello, my soul, you who know, why are you silent? I became a historian because I wanted to tell the stories of real people. So many victims of the witch trials in early modern Europe remain nameless, but we can still recover some of their stories. I intend to tell you about as many of them as I can, eventually. And I hope, once you've heard the stories of people like Anne, that you'll pass them on to others, and help those stories and their subjects live on just that little bit longer. You who know, why are you silent? If you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you're curious about these works and you want to learn more, we've posted some links in the show notes. As with any episode, if you want to see the sources we consulted or the music we used, check out the episode page at enchantedpodcast.net slash episodes. Rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts helps us move up in the ranks and helps new listeners find us more easily on a variety of podcast apps. So if you want to help spread the word, please rate and review Enchanted on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. This week's episode was produced by Thomas Ignatius and Corinne Wieben, with the voice talents of Joshua Summit and Sarah Tomei, and original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with us via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com, or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast, and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. To learn more about the show or to become a supporter and help keep the magic going, please visit enchantedpodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted. <laughs>